0: Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. So like Gianna said, um, your church, for those of you guys who, who aren't familiar with me, maybe haven't met me, maybe weren't here last week, my name is Daniel Lanning. And I get the pleasure and the opportunity this week, and during the season of time, to be here as your interim pastor, because uh, there is no lead pastor of the church uh, right now in this moment, and so I get to kind of step over and just help out, provide some leadership. So it's a temporary thing. I'm just here to provide a little bit of oversight and help to the staff and just kind of like shore things up and help out wherever I can. Uh, I do get the opportunity to preach a couple of times just to give you guys a consistent and familiar face and to remind you the district has not forgotten, like Foursquare is aware and are in the process of looking for a newly pastor, but I said it last week, and I'll say it again this week. Really, this whole process is in God's hands. Really, this whole process, God is the one who is watching out for this church, who is leading you guys forward, and he is the one who is finding the next senior leader of this church and drawing that person to this space. So I do encourage you continue to pray, pray for the church, pray for the district, pray for your staff and the leadership who are here at the church. Pray that God gives clarity and guidance and wisdom so that the next senior leader who comes in is just the perfect person and the best possible, you know, uh, person to be leading this church forward into the future that God has for us all. Okay. So just, yeah, just a, a quick word of encouragement. Um, For those of you guys who maybe don't know me very well, you may recognize my name. I mentioned this last week, but my dad was a four-score pastor in the area for quite a few years. So if my last name sounds familiar, maybe it's because you knew David Lanning, my father. Or possibly it's because the new coach at Oregon and I share the same name. He is also Dan Lanning and I am also Dan Lanning. And all I have to say is, no, I don't know if we're related, but I was here first. So he can deal with it. Um... I haven't met him yet. I really want to. So if anybody's got an in, feel free to let me know because I would just love to meet the guy and find out like where he comes from. What's his family history? Are we related if you go back far enough? Probably. I'd love to find out. So anyway, um, yeah, there we go. Good morning. <laughs> So we get to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark this week. We are going to be looking at Mark chapter 13 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13. I'm not going to read through the whole chapter because it's kind of long and honestly it's a little bit intense, but there are some things that I want to highlight and focus on. And I really want to look in at what is Jesus trying to accomplish in Mark chapter 13 this morning. Because the chapter is kind of an odd one, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But Jesus is aware of the timing of his life at this point. He knows that the crucifixion is right around the corner. Like he is almost done with the work that God has given him to do and the journey that he's on. And he knows that his disciples are about to go through this season where he's going to go to the cross and die, and his disciples are going to be left in this fearful, worried, overwhelmed place. And this is one of Jesus' very final conversations with them. And I want to focus in this morning on why. Why is this what Jesus leaves them with just before they're about to go through this traumatic event? Because whatever he's trying to do to set them up to succeed as disciples is something that he's still offering to us today. And that's what I want to draw on and that's what I want to grab onto this morning. I'm less concerned with parsing through the prophetic imagery of chapter 13 and drawing parallels that that's a worthwhile conversation, but it's not what we're going to do today. Okay. I want to take a minute to look this morning at what was Jesus' heart in this moment? How was he trying to care for his disciples? How was he trying to care for us as his disciples today? So as we continue this morning, would you pre- please join me in prayer as we cover the service today. God, I thank you for this opportunity to be here in your space. I thank you for this opportunity to be here as a church, as a body of believers this morning. God bless this time as we get to be here. Bless this time, open our ears, open our hearts, help us to hear from you. And God, my prayer this morning, as, as Dan shared at the end of worship with that word he gave, Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with hope and with courage and with the sense of you are with us. As we look at the scriptures, we look at the world around us, there are lots of things that we could be scared of. But ultimately, God, life is less about the scary things and more about you. And more about keeping our eyes on you and drawing our hope and courage from you. So, God, that's my prayer for this morning in this space that you would be with us. Help us to experience what you have for us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's read together the first few verses from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 4 kind of set the stage for what's going on here this week. And it says this, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? We get this interesting moment in the life of Jesus with his disciples in this fascinating conversation that flows out of this space. But step back and remember for a moment, okay? Chapter 11 of Mark, we saw the triumphal entry, right? Jesus and his disciples come to Jerusalem. There's this wonderful moment where the populace welcomes him. They've got the palm branches, right? The kids were out there. It's Palm Sunday at church, doing the whole thing, welcoming Jesus into the city. They come in. There's a sense of excitement. There's a sense of anticipation. Chapter 12 records Jesus teaching in the temple where he's communicating with the scribes and the Pharisees. He's teaching his disciples, and there's this sense of hope and and, and excitement for the future. And now we come to chapter 13, and it opens with this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And I'm reminded again that one of the things sometimes as American readers in the modern era from the West, it's easy for us sometimes to lose perspective on the the mindset of the disciples and sort of what they were expecting from Jesus at this time. Because the Jews for hundreds and hundreds of years have been hearing these prophecies. It's recorded in scripture. They've been hearing God talk to them and saying, there is a coming king. There is a coming deliverer in the line of David. You guys look backward and David as this king represents this golden age in your history. And I promise there is another king coming who will sit on his throne and who will restore this kingdom to you. And the Jews very naturally anticipated and expected that this would be a very literal real-world political kingdom. And for them at this time, there was a strong expectation on their part that the Messiah, that Jesus, was going to be this person who came in and politically, militarily set them free from the oppression of the Roman Empire that was ruling over them at that time. And throughout the whole Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels, there's this tension between Jesus and his disciples and the people listening, where he's constantly trying to correct these presuppositions. Because is Jesus' biggest concern the oppression of the Roman Empire at this point? No, it is not. Some of you guys who are familiar with the story of the Gospels already know he has much bigger fish to fry, okay? Rome is going to get dealt with eventually, right? Rome's going to get taken care of, and the the people of Israel are going to experience something different. But in this moment, Jesus' work is far greater than that, far weightier than that, far more important than that. But it's tough for him to help the disciples sort of catch up and keep up with him. He keeps on telling them these things, hey, look, we're here to deal with, you know, sin and the barriers between God and mankind. And the disciples keep going, you mean the Romans, right? You're here to get rid of the Romans and set us free so that we can be our own people and rule ourselves again. And Jesus keeps trying to redirect them and saying, well, yeah, kind of, but also no, not really. And this is another one of those moments for them right here where they're in the Temple Mount, they've got this sense of excitement. And I have to assume that for the disciples, all of these threads are coming together. Jesus is in Jerusalem. They have the triumphal entry. He's preaching, they're looking around. And I have to assume that for them, there's this anticipation of them looking around going, is this it? Is this the moment? Are we seeing these things come together? Is Jesus about to do this thing? Is he about to proclaim himself the Messiah and the King? Is he about to start this happening so that we can be set free? And out of this space, one of them makes the, the well-intentioned comment about the city around them. He looks at the city and he says, you know, teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus looks around and like this, leaden weight drops into the middle of this conversation. Yeah, do you see these stones? They are all gonna get torn down. Not one is gonna be left upon another. And just sort of like ends the conversation right there. I don't know if you guys have ever had an experience like that where there's a sense of like levity and people are having a good time and they're kind of joking around and enjoying each other. And then someone, for some reason, just like in the middle of the conversation drops this total downer of a statement and just everybody goes silent, okay? This is one of those moments where Jesus makes this comment and everybody just stops and freezes and so they walk away and they cross over and they're they're sitting on the Mount of Olives where they can clearly see the Temple Mount area they can clearly see the view before them and understandably so some of the disciples come to him and they say all right Jesus when you made this big downer of a statement now we're all nervous and worried when are these things going to happen It's a tremendously sobering moment for them, and I'm reminded that at this time, the city of Jerusalem was an architectural masterpiece. And the Temple Mount area, in particular, was well known and renowned throughout the world as this thing of incredible beauty. See, there was this king, this Roman-appointed king called Herod the Great, who came just before Jesus' time. And Herod the Great was fanatical about pouring money and resources into the nation of Israel to build up all of these architectural wonders. He wanted the nation, and Jerusalem and the Temple Mount area in particular, he wanted them to be beautiful. And he wanted his name to be historically associated with all of these works and these wonders. Well, success, okay? He accomplished that. And it's interesting to note and to look back and to try and get a scope of what did the city look like at this time because it does, spoiler alert, it does get destroyed later in a military conflict. The city of Jerusalem as we know it today retains almost nothing of what Herod built. A little bit of a commentary on his life, okay? But at that time, we do have some of, interestingly, some of the foundation stones underground, underneath the Temple Mount area are the original stones from his time. And just to give you a sense of perspective on what things may have looked like, there's a stone called the Western Stone. At the bottom of the wall, it forms part of the base and the foundation of the Temple Mount area. And this stone block is built into the wall one single stone block is 44 and a half feet long and 11 feet high one block and in fact archaeologists don't know how deep how far back it goes because it's built into the wall and they'd have to tear the whole Temple Mount area apart to figure out how big it is Now, I don't know if that's the size of the block that this disciple's pointing at when he makes this comment, okay, because this is a foundation stone, it's deep underground, but that's same builders, same era, same architectural improvements at that time. This is the kind of scope of what King Herod did at that time, what he was able to build. Jerusalem was an impressive masterpiece, and that's exactly what the disciples are looking at when they have this conversation, when they say this, and this is exactly what Jesus is pointing at when he's saying, all of this is going to come to ruin. And so they're now sitting at the Mount of Olives having this conversation. And this is what we get for the rest of chapter 13, this unpacking where Jesus starts to answer their question. Let me tell you when these things are going to happen and what it's going to look like. It's often called the Olivet Discourse or sometimes the Little Apocalypse. And I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning because it's pretty long and it's pretty intense. But like I said also, my goal this morning is not to focus in on the details of the prophetic elements, but to focus on what was Jesus' heart. What was his goal in the middle of this? Because Jesus does something here that we don't often see him do. Okay, He gives a sort of apocalyptic prophetic prediction. And that's a little out of character for Jesus, but it's not out of character for the Jewish uh, mentality and the Jewish dialogue at the time. This is one of the little oddities that we as Western readers, we come to a section of scripture like this and it feels very very unfamiliar to us. See, apocalyptic literature for them was an actual style of dialogue and literature at that point. You could sit down and intentionally write an apocalyptic book if you wanted to. It was a style of literature. One of the easiest corollaries that we have today is in like movies or television shows you know, that you have movie stereotypes or tropes or whatever, that if you sit down to watch a movie, you can pretty quickly know what kind of movie you're watching usually, right? That You can ask a couple of questions. If it's a romantic comedy, okay, it's going to involve some, some laughter, but it's going to be some variation on boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, right? Some twisting of that formula, and it even becomes like humorous at a point because you can kind of look at your watch and go, oh, it's about time for them to break up or something like that, okay? And every movie, every storytelling medium has those kind of themes like that. If it's some sort of epic adventure movie, then it's going to be a twist on the classical you know, hero's journey from Greek mythology, and the soundtrack is probably going to be composed by Hans Zimmer or whatever. If it's an action movie, you know it's going to be light on character development. There's going to be lots of gunfights and car chases and explosions. You, you kind of use these stereotypes, these tropes, to know what to expect from the story that's being told to you. And at this time, apocalyptic literature was exactly like that. It was a style of literature. It was a kind of storytelling and talking that the Jewish people, the disciples, would have been very familiar with. We don't have a good modern-day corollary to it, but it would have been very familiar to them. Um, My family, I grew up loving the 80s TV show, The A Team. Anybody here familiar? (laughs) A few fans. The older I get, I turned 42 this last week, which I know is not technically old, but it's older than I feel, right? Isn't that the way it goes for everybody? And the 80s was, was obviously the decade I grew up in. It was my childhood and the A-Team was part of my childhood. But I realize now by modern standards, it's kind of ancient history um, a little bit. But I love that TV show and my parents used to make a joke that you could set your watch by the A-Team and what was happening in the episode. That the first X number of minutes would be spent presenting the problem and then they would come up with a plan and then things would go wrong and then they would redeem the plan and then there would be some sort of giant fight and lots of explosions. Nobody would die or even get hurt and then it would all get resolved and they would wrap it up in the end by the the end of however long the episodes were, right? And as Jesus sits down with his disciples, there's an element of this going on. He is leaning into some stereotypes. He is leaning into some imagery that they're gonna be used to. In fact, most scholars have, have identified that at this time there were a lot of writers and a lot of speakers who were making prophetic statements about the city of Jerusalem and about Herod's temple at that time, Jesus was not the only person saying there is a coming destruction in the future for the city of Jerusalem and for the temple. And so when Jesus talks to his disciples, some of his dialogue is familiar to them. Some of it is things that they have heard before that other writers have said. It would not be totally unfamiliar. But whatever is inspiring the style of the dialogue, the picture here remains the same. There is a destruction coming that Jesus is pointing toward. This whole chapter is one that's describing a future filled with hardship and danger and even of ruin. And the disciples make this comment about the grandeur and greatness of their city, and Jesus responds by telling them how it's all gonna fall apart. And this is where things get a little problematic for us because it is done in the apocalyptic style and because that is fairly unfamiliar to us. And so when we read a section like this, it's actually pretty easy for us to come to it in sort of an unhealthy way. In fact, some of you were already squirming in your seats a little bit because you're looking ahead in the chapter thinking, man, where's he going with this this morning? Are we going to talk about... Because maybe some of you have had some bad experiences with sections of Scripture like this before. And I get it. I understand it. All right? There are portions of the Bible, the last half of the book of Daniel, most of Ezekiel, this chapter in the Gospels, the book of Revelation, and they all look forward to the future and deal with some of these pictures of hurt and of loss and of coming destruction. And those things aren't necessarily easy to process or easy to contextualize. So I have a question. Who here, talking about movies, stereotypes, and tropes, enjoys like apocalypse movies or post-apocalyptic movies like Mad Max or Road Warrior or The Book of Eli? I'm a fan of those as well, I really enjoy these. Now, follow-up question, okay? Who here would wanna live in that future? There are, oh, that's surprising. There are fewer hands for that one, okay? (laughs) There's a reason for that because when it's just a story, When it's just a fantasy, that's one thing, and it appeals to us in a particular way. But if I'm looking at it, anticipating it being reality, that's a very different interaction, okay? I was a youth pastor for a long time, and I remember my, my high school boys were obsessed with the idea of the zombie apocalypse, that they were convinced was gonna happen one day. And there were all these high school boys planning and plotting how they were going to respond to the zombie apocalypse. And I remember being at a stage in my life where that kind of thing appealed to me as well, but at this time where they were talking about it, I was starting to have kids. And I had little kids at home, and all of a sudden the idea of a zombie apocalypse was far less appealing to me when I was like, man, how would I take care of my family if there were zombies everywhere. And all of a sudden, the idea of that being a possibility was far less attractive than when I was just like, yeah, I'm going to find a truck and we're going to take over a Bimart and we're going to save ourselves. And <laughs> right. I don't know about you guys, but these were serious conversations that many, many hours were poured into at one season of my life. I have a book at home on my shelf called How to Survive the Zombie Apocalypse. But I still, I haven't read it in quite a few years, but, but I still have it. It's still appreciated. But we come to sections of Scripture like this and that tension is there, isn't it? That we read these moments, we hear Jesus in the middle of this dialogue and he starts sharing some of these pictures of the future and some of this imagery and some of these, you know, is it metaphorical? Is it literal? What are we reading here? I don't really understand. And it starts to get less and less appealing the more we look at these moments. And I'm brought back to that question, what was Jesus' heart for his disciples when he shared this? What was he trying to accomplish with them? And as I was getting ready for this for this message this morning, I was reminded, you know what, I think there are some ways that we tend to approach sections of Scripture like this Some responses that we have that Jesus did not intend for his disciples. And so I want to identify a few of those this morning. The first thing, and this personally for me, especially as I get older, my default is when I read stuff like this or when I hear about sort of like apocalyptic things in the news, my default is to get overwhelmed and freaked out and then to stick my head in the sand, okay? I don't know if there's anybody else who responds that way, but my default is to sort of get overwhelmed and my eyes get wide and I'm like, I gotta stop looking, right? And I gotta shut my eyes and stop paying attention to what's going on in the world around me. And that makes perfect sense, but the problem is that's not Jesus' heart for his disciples here in this moment, is it? He doesn't want them to get overwhelmed and paralyzed by fear. He doesn't want them to stop paying attention. In fact, part of his encouragement at the end of chapter 13, he says, stay awake, stay aware, stay alert. But not because the world is scary. Don't pay attention to that. He says, keep your eyes on me. Stay awake, stay aware, stay alert, because God is good and he is faithful in the middle of the things that are scary. The second thing that I frequently see from people, I spent quite a few years uh, working in Christian bookstores and then working in Christian publishing afterward, and one of the things that Christian authors love to do more than anything else is solve the riddles of Scripture, okay? They love to take moments like this and look at this prophetic imagery and figure it out, And unravel the number of books that I have seen published that claim to have unlocked the secrets of the book of Revelation and to know exactly what God's plan is for the future is far too high. There are too many authors who are like, I've got it figured out. I know where this is going. And I don't know where that comes from. If it's our desire for like certainty in life, or there's a sense of security, or we just love knowing secrets that nobody else knows. I'm not sure what inspires it, but that is clearly not what Jesus had in mind in this moment for his disciples, was it? In fact, he tells them, he says, nobody's going to know. Verse 28, now learn from the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone So do you think it was Jesus' intention that his disciples would hear that encouragement and go, oh, he wanted us to figure this out. He told us no one's gonna know the day or the hour, but really he wanted us to know the day or the hour. We're gonna get this sorted out, okay? That's not Jesus' heart in this moment. That's not where he's trying to go. He wants them to see these things as they happen and then to recognize God's handiwork behind them. He wants them to identify these events and to trust and to be established in their understanding that God is in control. The third thing that we'll often do with sections of scripture like this is that we'll turn them into a tool for leveraging people's fear. And this is one that bothers me the most as a pastor and as a leader. And I find sometimes myself slipping back into this space, but using scriptures like this as a way of like motivating people to get about the work of sharing the gospel because you need to be afraid of something, okay? And I don't, I don't love that for a variety of reasons, but primarily because I don't see it in Jesus' heart here. When Jesus talks to his disciples, when he's trying to motivate them, when he's trying to, to spur them forward towards sharing the gospel, do you know what Jesus uses to motivate his disciples? He uses love over and over and over again. How does the conversation at the Last Supper go? You, they will know that you are my disciples by your fear of me. Is that how it goes? No, they will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. That's what he reminds them. And there's this temptation, when we get to moments like this, to try and say, Jesus is coming back, get ready, because we're all gonna get graded at the end, and you make sure that you don't fail. That's not his heart in this moment. That's not the direction that Jesus is going in this space. Jesus was trying to fill his disciples with a sense of his imminent return and his imminent coming back, but not as a way of filling them with fear. He wanted them to be moved by love. I'm a parent now, I have three little kids. I have an 11-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And I love my children, they're obviously amazing, but sometimes my children are absolutely infuriating as well. Can I be honest about that for a moment? Some of you guys have kids, some of you don't have kids, but this is just the way that it's happened for me. And I find that one of the difficulties in my life is trying to motivate them to do what I want them to do. Am I the only one who struggles with this? And I wrestle with this tension sometimes, right? Because for me, in my unhealthy moments, there is this strong temptation to motivate them through fear. I don't know if anybody else has ever wrestled with this. I'm a big guy, right? I'm six foot four, I weigh about 250 pounds, okay? I'm not small and I can be loud and a little bit scary if I wanna be and there are moments where I am deeply tempted to stand there and yell at my kids and try to be an intimidating presence to scare them into brushing their teeth or going to bed or whatever the nonsense is that we're supposed to be accomplishing that day, right? And if I can step back and be objective about it for two seconds, I'm like, that's dumb. Why would I do that? Because at the end of the day, what do I want my kids to feel toward me? Do I want them to be scared of me or do I want them to love me? I want my kids to love me. I want my kids to feel safe with me and in my presence. And I want them to be obedient and do what they're supposed to do. But on the other side of that, I do not want them running away from me. And the heart of Jesus here in this moment as he speaks to his disciples is very much the same. He is not interested in scaring them away from God. He is interested in drawing them closer to God's heart and keeping them in this space of health. So I'd like to caution you this morning, if you're reading one of these sections of scripture, this one or anywhere else, and you find yourself wrestling with any of these areas and getting drawn into this stuff, maybe slow down for a second and talk to God and pause and say, God, help me to understand this. Well, I'm starting to get overwhelmed. I'm starting to get scared. I'm starting to feel motivated by fear. And take those things to him and ask for his guidance and for his help. Because again, what I want to focus here on this morning is what is jesus trying to do for his disciples how is he setting them up to succeed because that is very much his heart he knows what's coming his death is right around the corner and he's aware that his disciples are going to have to struggle through that season of life and it's going to hurt and it's going to be hard but he wants them to navigate it well he wanted to give his disciples something for the moments that were ahead and that's the same thing that he wants to do for us today his crucifixion is coming and he knows that they're going to need help. He knows they're going to need to be prepared. And he knows that their future is going to be filled with many good things as well. But he also knows that after the crucifixion, they've got a lot ahead of them coming, don't they? They're going to be arrested because of him. They're going to deal with legal repercussions. They're going to, be un- they're going to unjustly have to stand trial before the religious leaders of their day, and even before some Roman officials, they are going to live to see wars and military conflicts. It's about 33 years after this point in Jesus' life that there is going to be a war that starts between the nation of Israel and Rome that is going to result in the city of Jerusalem being conquered by the general Titus, and he's going to burn it to cinder and ash, and he is going to tear all the stones off of each other. And that prophetic prediction is going to come true. And Jesus knows that his disciples some of them are going to live through that season of time and he wants them to be ready and prepared. And so what does he tell them? What encouragement does he give them? He says, don't be misled. Keep your eyes on me. Watch me. Focus on me. There's going to be a lot of distractions, a lot of voices that try and say, hey, over here, over here, pay attention to me. But keep your eyes on me. I can care for you. In fact, he says, don't be afraid. And this blows my mind, right? Because one of the things he says in this passage is these things must take place. They have to. It's part of the plan that God is moving everybody toward. They're there for a reason. They're accomplishing a purpose. And he says, don't be afraid. You can see them happening and know that God is at work, that God is in control. And then he says, don't worry in the midst of persecution because the gospel is going to spread to the world as a result. In fact, Jesus even promises that God is going to shorten the time of destruction as much as he can so that it will only be as long as it needs to be. And he promises, Jesus says, behold, I am telling you all this in advance. I'm preparing you so that you will know I am with you in everything that happens. These are the encouragements that he hands to the disciples in this moment. He's not doing this to scare or overwhelm them. He tells them not to be afraid that all these things have to happen so they can rest in him, so that they can trust, so that they can have a degree of peace in the middle of it. They can look back at this conversation and say, you know what? Jesus called it. He told us these things were going to happen. He prepared us. He is still in the middle of this. Maybe he really is paying attention and maybe it really is going to be okay. And that's when I'm reminded that Jesus also spoke this for us as well. He knew we were going to be reading these scriptures scriptures, thousands of years later. He knew that many of the things that he talks about in chapter 13 were still in our future. This is one of the dilemmas of biblical prophecy, right? If you spent any time looking at this, that understanding the timetables are difficult. Some of these things were for the disciples, for their time, for their future. Some of them are now in our past, but some of these prophetic predictions have yet to come true. And trying to figure out what's what and what has happened, what's yet to happen, what is happening, now, there's some fruit to be had in that conversation, but it's not the one we're having this morning, right? What was Jesus' heart for the disciples? What is his heart for us? I'm reminded that we as people have this tendency to respond to sort of like big ticket fears with a degree of like, uh, where I, I don't know about you guys, but you know, there are plenty of conversations, and I know that every generation has had their version of this conversation, but some spin on what's the world coming to, right? We look around at gas prices, or we look around at grocery prices, or whatever it is, and we're like, oh gosh, things to be, used to be this way, or things used to be better, and what's happening to the world? And there's this, and I'm not saying don't do that necessarily, but if I have to choose between nervous hand-wringing and restful trust in the providence of God and in the work that he's involved in, I know which one of those two options sounds better to me. I would rather be at rest in the peaceful knowledge that God's hands are all over the details of my life and the details of this world. He is at work, amen? And none of this is out of his control, ever, not once. God knows what he is doing and he's bringing us along for the ride. Take heed and stay alert, not because the world is scary, but because God is good and he is in the middle of the details of our lives. Be diligent in the things that he's called us to. Not because he's coming back to great us, but because the world that he created is worth caring for. And because one day he is coming back to reclaim it completely. And folks, I want to be part of that. I want to join him in that season of life. I want to participate in that future and in what he's doing. As we start to close the service today, I'd like to invite the worship team. Dan, if you guys want to come back up. But let's not forget, he talks about the hard scuff because he knows that's what's gonna cause the disciples to doubt. He knows that's what's gonna give them pause. But their future is not just hard stuff, is it? Their future is also filled with joy. It's filled with God's presence. They're not far away from the events of Acts chapter two where the Holy Spirit gets poured out and they get filled and God moves powerfully. They get to participate in that. They get to see the spread of the gospel across the entire Roman Empire and the joy of participating in that process with God. They're going to get to see the faithfulness of God demonstrated in some powerful ways. And ultimately, they get to witness the glory of Jesus' resurrection firsthand. Folks, we believe in a God who is still in the business of resurrection. Amen. And even though our lives can seem overwhelming and fearful sometimes and often scary, we believe in the God whose resurrection power is still at work and is still in us and moving through what we say. Paul encourages us in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That was what he wanted for his disciples then. It's what he wants for us now. Amen.